Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Thursday, January 11th. Today, Colorado Sun reporters John Ingold and Michael Booth talk about a startling new report on climate change in Colorado, plus more health and environment news. Before we begin, join ACG Denver's Rocky Mountain Corporate Growth Conference on February 12th to 13th as the middle market business community comes together to discuss trending issues and the latest investment strategies. Make new connections and partner with experts at the Hyatt Regency Denver for two days of networking and learning opportunities that will help you prepare for 2024 and beyond. Register at acg.org events. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. In 1900, Theodore Roosevelt, a war hero and New York governor, was elected as William McKinley's vice president. He prepared for office uniquely, embarking on a hunting expedition in northwestern Colorado. Traveling by rail and then overland, Roosevelt, with guide John Goff and 15 dogs, spent weeks in Rio Blanco and Moffat counties hunting mountain lions which were seen as threats to ranchers and wildlife. Despite isolation, his exploits made news, with Roosevelt refuting exaggerated reports. They killed various animals, including 17 mountain lions, 12 by Roosevelt. He shot eight and stabbed four. The skins became part of his trophy collection. Shortly after, Roosevelt assumed the vice presidency, frequently returning to Colorado for hunting trips, further adding to his outdoors legend. Before we continue, the Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, HCPF, is raising awareness of the invaluable roles of direct care workers and the direct care workforce in Colorado. Direct care workers play a crucial role in enhancing the lives of individuals requiring assistance due to disability, age, or illness. Learn more about the impact of these workers and how to become one by visiting hcpf.colorado.gov direct-care-spotlight. Next, our feature story. Well, hi, everyone. Happy Thursday, and welcome to another edition of our Daily Sun Up Reporter Chats here on the podcast. Uh, I'm John Ingold. I'm the healthcare reporter at The Sun, and joining me, as always, on Thursday is my colleague, Michael Booth, who covers climate and the environment. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. We've tied down the patio furniture and laid in some wood for what's coming, uh, some very cold temps, so I think we're ready. Yeah, and we're going to ask you about uh, a major wind event that happened a couple years ago uh, and led to the Marshall Fire, some interesting new research out on that. But first, I wanted to start on uh, climate change and a really alarming report that came out uh, in the last week that looked at uh, the impact on Colorado. So what did this report say? It's a definitive report, and it's really in our wheelhouse at the Temperature Newsletter, uh, talking about climate and health together and the health of the state in general in terms of terrain, geography, weather. And CSU puts out this report, updates it every few years on what climate change has actually done to Colorado, what's measurable, and what it should be expected to do over the next couple of decades. Kind of shocking, actually, in terms of what they're reporting, that we have already warmed up on our average temperature by 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit since about 1980. Uh, that's as of today, um, as of 2022. And we've got another one to four degrees to go in average temperature if things don't radically change by 2050. 
So those are some numbers that are already changing the, uh, the effects of weather on the ground in Colorado, the availability of water. Another thing they talked about with Jared Smith partnering on the story as a water expert, that we could lose up to 30% of Colorado river flows over the next 30 years by 2050. And so those higher temperatures rob precipitation, they dry up the ground so that what precipitation we do get in the winter does not make it to the stream beds in the spring during runoff season. So some big challenges ahead. And again, kudos to CSU and their climate team for putting all this together in a way that's easier for people to understand, easy for policymakers to look at and say, what else can we do? What else should we be doing to accelerate our state's work in doing what we can to cut carbon even though carbon goes globally, we make a contribution to it. And what else, what more can we be doing to speed that up? And, you know, when I think about uh, these kind of numbers for climate change, I often focus on, you know, what's this going to do to my quality of life? So I'm thinking hotter summers, which I just like already hate to begin with. I'm thinking, you know, wildfires in the mountain areas that I love to go. But as your story pointed out, there's potentially really, really massive economic impacts that the state could see from this. Yep. And we're seeing that more and more with every big incident of storm and every drought. So the potential for many more wildfires of the kind that in the Marshall Fire, for example, which we're going to be talking about in a minute, uh, not only unfortunately killed the result of the deaths of two people, but also created $2 billion in property damage from the loss of 2,000 homes. That could happen more and more often, is likely to happen more and more often. And one impact that that's having right away is that people's insurance is already going way up. And so they're paying thousands of dollars more a year, whether they live in a fire zone or not. It's all the insurance companies are having to raise prices across the board to pay for these major disasters. We're seeing effects on wildlife. Wildlife are moving out of the hotter zones and moving into zones they're not as familiar with, sometimes disappearing from the state altogether, whether it's birds in the high country or other animals migrating to places that are safer for them. And just urban heat islands are another impact. When you go up an average of 2.3 degrees in some places in the urban areas that are full of concrete and asphalt that hold that heat for longer, you can get five to 10 degree temperature changes. And that's hard, especially for people who have already been impacted by pollution in the environment and environmental injustice over the past few decades. So yes, uh, many potential impacts to come. Yeah, and obviously skiing industry, is going to see a lot of changes, agriculture, and then you just mentioned it, uh, pollution and the potential for a, a lot worse uh, air quality here in the Denver metro area. Ozone that we talk about all the time, which yep. is baked even more into our system when the temperatures go higher and we're trying to combat it with all kinds of measures that are then being balanced off, unfortunately, by the continuing rise in temperatures. And so we kind of ended up spinning our wheels in the last few years on ozone. So unless there's some more severe cuts in the pollutants that go into that, we could be spinning our wheels for a bit longer. Well, let's switch uh, to talk about the Marshall Fire now. This is, of course, the uh, fire that occurred on uh, the last days of December uh, 2021. Um, it uh, it affected uh, the areas of Superior and Louisville in Boulder County. And uh, I believe most destructive wildfire in terms of property loss uh, in the state's history. And... Also, some new research out that um, found that there were some really peculiar weather patterns that uh, that contributed to it. So, 
maybe you could explain that, Mike, and then what, what was the impact of climate change on leading to this disaster? We, as we mentioned, dragging our patio furniture back into the right place and getting our garbage cans and recycling from down the street in this windy week that we're going through right now. Uh, Wednesday, we had up to 60 mile per hour blasts on the front range. The people in Boulder who study this full-time, NOAA and NCAR and the National Weather Service, Service in Boulder that have sensors up on these high mesas, wanted to go back and take a really close look at not just the fire part of Marshall, but what the weather forecast was, whether they did an adequate job in anticipating those incredible downslope winds that drove the sparks so fast and created so much damage so quickly, whether there's more that could be done to both forecast and then to warn people when they know things like that are likely to happen. So they issued a new study that goes through all of those numbers and some pretty remarkable conclusions from it. Number one for me being that there were hurricane force winds for 11 hours that day, starting when uh, before the fire sparked at about 1130 in two different places at the junction of 93 and 72 between Boulder and Jefferson County, and then just blasting for the next 11 hours straight never really fell below the levels that they were seeing. Often in a downslope wind, you get a blast of wind at 60 miles an hour, and then you get a lull, 10 or 15 minutes or even longer. What was unusual about the Marshall Fire is it never stopped. It rarely dropped below 60 miles an hour during that 11 hours, and sometimes was blasting up to 120, 130 miles an hour um, all that day. And so once you've got a spark, then it's a matter of just trying to get people out of the way because you're not going to be able to stop that fire. And the report's conclusions were that they could have done a little bit better on forecasting. They hoped that the better computing power and more accurate work that they always do each year that goes by, they get better at it, will pinpoint the warnings that they were able to issue ahead of that fire. But also they can do a better job with communications. So they can now draw, and when they see that winds are going to be happening 12 hours from now, 24 hours from now in a certain area, they can draw what they call a polygon on the map around that area. And that includes the polygon around the cell phone towers in that area. And they can put out an alert directly to the cell phones of everybody in that area. It could be 50,000 people within that polygon and say, there's very likely to be a high wind event. And if there's any sparks, there could be a fire event as well. And we suggest you keep following the weather, be ready to evacuate at a moment's notice and keep watching. So they're hoping that that will improve and this study should bolster that. So not more good research coming out of all those scientists that we're lucky to have in our backyard in Boulder. So John, on also on weather front, things are getting colder, winds are blowing, people are staying inside, and that is having people trade air, trade viruses, and that's starting to show up in some of the statistics on COVID and other respiratory diseases that you're updating this week. What did you find out? Yeah. So I uh, really was interested in trying to figure out what's going on with the COVID trends, because anecdotally, I think uh, we probably all know somebody who's, uh, you know, dealing with a, a respiratory virus right now. And, uh, you know, personally know a few people who have tested positive for COVID lately. So um, really wanted to understand uh, what was going on there. And it's a little bit tough to say what's going on right now in Colorado. This is, I think it's always sort of an interesting period right after the new year in Colorado for COVID because we've seen this for really the last, well, this is our fourth pandemic winter. So it's our fourth respiratory virus season in Colorado that we've had COVID with us. And 
uh, we've seen the same trend happen pretty much every year, which is that cases and infections, and, and this year we're going to to talk about those in terms of hospitalizations because uh, tracking case numbers is really, really difficult right now with so many people testing at home and then not reporting their results. So if you just look at hospitalizations this year, but they follow similar trends to cases in previous years, uh, you see that peaks are hitting actually right around the, the last week of November, like give or take a week. This is something that's happened each of the four years, and it happened again this year. So technically, we are not yet at our, our or we, we are past, I guess I would say, our peak for hospitalizations for COVID in this, uh, this current season. Um, what we're seeing now, though, is a, uh, a little bit of a, a re-increase uh, in cases, a little bit of a rebound um, that could be driven by a, a new variant. If perhaps you've heard of this uh, JN1 variant, uh, another sort of part of the, the Omicron uh, family tree that, that is around. It's driving a lot of case increases around the country. Uh, in Colorado, it does appear that maybe it's leading to an increase in cases here. But so far, still not back up to that that peak that we saw in late November. So um, interesting things happening. I can just give a couple quick numbers. We have, uh, as of this week, about 246 people who are hospitalized with COVID in Colorado. That is up from last week's number, which was given at 213, uh, but below still the, the peak that hit in the second to last week in November this year of 280. Um, we did see some other uh, indications this week that maybe sort of modulate, mod, modulated a little bit, that, that sort of uh, 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 backed off a little bit in terms of their severity. Uh, but right now, it kind of looking like we're sort of hovering at this, this plateau. We're not seeing a sustained decline yet. Um, these numbers are, as far as winter peaks for COVID, still really, really low. Last year, there was 400-something hospitalizations. The state's all-time record is is well up into the the eighteen hundred mark or something around that round. So uh, we're not seeing anywhere close to what we've seen in previous winters, but uh, is is uh, you know something to be aware of right now that it's a little bit higher than we've seen uh, in uh, previous months. It sounds like from your writing, they're still trying to figure out why this pattern that has emerged in the last four years is the way it is. If, if why it's late November. Is that too soon to be explained by the fact that everybody's just been traveling for the third week of November Thanksgiving week and it wouldn't show up by then? Uh, they seem to say it's too soon to tell. We don't know exactly why COVID tends to peak then, but maybe flu peaks later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, uh, probably, if you can detach yourself from the, the human misery of having COVID and, and even the, the severe medical situation it can create for some people, this is uh, one of the more fascinating questions around COVID in Colorado, because this late November peak is, first of all, it's earlier than what you generally see around the rest of the country. And so we do end up with these patterns where Colorado has these case peaks and then this new variant emerges elsewhere in the country. And there's this question of, oh, is this variant going to affect us in Colorado as much? Uh, in the case of the original Omicron variant, when it came out, it, it most certainly did. We saw a really huge rebound in cases. In the case of the variant that emerged last year, which was uh, an XBB variant, uh, if if you have followed along on on the weird names of all these uh, these Omicron children, um, this one actually that one last year did, really didn't have much of an impact at all. So it, it is 
very interesting. And then you add in what you just mentioned, the holiday travel and and the impact of getting together with family members and sort of uh, connecting with groups of people that you haven't usually seen. Those are all things that would generally fuel viral transmission. And yet in Colorado, we've never really seen that happen absent the the emergence of a a really powerful new variant. So um, definitely something that uh, others have noticed and uh, makes them curious as well, but not something that anybody really has an answer for. You know, it's it's not just human movement and and behavior that drives viral transmission. It's also temperature. It's also uh, humidity levels, and trying to figure out why an individual place has the right sort of environmental conditions for transmission, and then those those conditions change uh, is something that that we're still learning. So at the same time, Colorado skiers are racing to be the first in the country to open with some good stuff. There, we're somehow also racing to have our peak in COVID happen sooner than other states. Um, and you know, to be determined, I guess, why that's going on. Yeah, definitely, definitely, something to watch. We'll see. Okay. Well, thanks for reporting on that. Thanks for everybody who has tuned in for the podcast today, and we hope that you will consider subscribing to the Temperature Newsletter. Tom comes out every Wednesday and provides some of the reporting that we talk about in the podcast, but also leads you into all kinds of other stories at coloradosun.com and tries, as we mentioned, to combine both climate and health reporting in a way that everybody can appreciate. So thanks again for everybody's time. Thank you, John. Yeah, thank you, Mike. And have a good week, everybody. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Jason Bobert is free on bond after he was arrested Tuesday following two incidents involving his former wife, U.S. Representative Lauren Bobert, and their adult son. Jason Bobert was arrested and released after his son called police in the early morning hours Tuesday when the two were in an alleged altercation at the family home. This came after police were called to a restaurant in Silt on Saturday night when the former couple was arguing and he called police. Jason Bobert is facing misdemeanor charges from the Tuesday morning incident. The Colorado General Assembly is back in session, and during the opening day Wednesday, legislative leaders focused their remarks on civility more than policy. The tone was a marked departure from the typical first day, which is usually dominated by optimistic promises to fulfill lengthy legislative agendas. Instead, House and Senate leaders called for lawmakers to be kind to one another after two Democrats resigned in December, citing a toxic work environment. The calls also come in response to offensive remarks and interruptions that plagued the House chamber last year during the regular lawmaking term and during the special legislative session. As the legislative session gets underway, a big focus will be water and how Colorado can conserve and protect it. There are at least a half dozen water-related bills expected to surface this year. They likely will include support for improving the water quality in Grand Lake and significant new funding of up to $5 million for turf replacement programs. Also under consideration will be a pilot program to test using natural systems such as plant and soils rather than water treatment plants to clean up water and new state-level protection for wetlands. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. The Colorado Sun is nonpartisan and completely independent. We're always dedicated to telling the in-depth stories we need today more than ever. And the Sun is supported by readers and listeners like you. 
right now, you can head to coloradosun.com and become a member. Starting at $5 per month for a basic membership, and if you bump it up to $20 per month, you'll get access to our exclusive politics and outdoors newsletters. Thanks for starting your morning with us, and don't forget to tune in again tomorrow.